Good morning. Good to be together this morning in the study of God's Word. Take your Bibles and look with me at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. As you know, we're studying principles for how to cultivate humility, and uh, we've called it the series just the pride crushers, the things that we must do to crush pride. It was Abraham Lincoln who said that what kills the skunk is the publicity it gives itself. (laughs) So true. (laughs) When we were raising our children, we, uh, we had this little technique in the house. It was part of our family drama that if someone was bragging, someone else in the room who was hearing it would blow an imaginary trumpet. <laughs> That's what we would do. If you were bragging, someone would take their hand, put it up to their mouth, and, and blow the trumpet that you were blowing on your own behalf. It was a reminder to us that, that our particular problem is we love recognition and Worse, we don't like it when someone else is getting it. And in Paul's ministry to some of these wonderful churches, there were pastors that came up behind him, and particularly when he was locked up in prison, they would come behind him and they would put their ministry in place, and in doing so, they felt the need, obviously, in their flesh to sort of downplay what God had been doing to use the Apostle Paul, and they would play up their own gifts. It it was really uh, a rampant problem in Corinth, but quite often uh, very universal in a young man's ministry. And Paul mentions that very thing in in chapter 1 of the book of Philippians. He says that he wanted these brethren, verse 12, to know that his circumstances, that is to say being in prison, had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that his imprisonment in the cause of Christ had become so well known through the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. And because of it, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul Paul was being used by God in the afflictions he was suffering to give new believers who'd come to Christ because of his imprisonment and his gospel witness, greater courage. Paul loved that. Verse 15, however, some of these new people in the ministry, he said, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking that they can cause me distress in my imprisonment. So here you have Paul pointing to the reality that whenever you want to be used of God, whenever you have a talent, whenever you are skilled at something, whenever you pray that God would use you whenever you're involved in something that has a level of achievement to it, whatever we do that that could shine a light on on prowess, on something about our lives that others appreciate, the tendency then is to downplay everyone else around us and to 
toot our own horn, to come to the place where we become those who brag. And the, the backside problem of any kind of boasting about what God has given us and what we have is this problem of envy and jealousy. Paul said some men were doing ministry out of envy and strife. Now, jealousy and envy are often used as twins in Scripture. If you look at James chapter 3, you see them associated with selfish ambition. Look at James chapter 3 for a moment. Very strong language by James about this issue. Verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show it by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. To have jealousy and selfish ambition is, in fact, to be arrogant and to come against the truth in hypocrisy. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. And then verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. What you have in the New Testament is a stern warning about drifting into the problem of self-aggrandizement and the accompanying sins that trail behind it closely, jealousy and envy. And we have been talking about ways to nurture humility, and so you have to get after this issue. It has to appear in our list. And by way of review, you remember we had been in Luke 14. Jesus had pointed out the sin of the Pharisees, which was all about puffing themselves up. And we began to look at ways we can nurture the opposite. We can go the opposite direction to fortify our hearts against this kind of tendency, this drift into blatant pride, and then the more subtle forms of it. The first was to remember that Christ is Lord of your life. Christ is sovereign. It cultivates humility in us to believe it, to declare it, and to submit our hearts to it. It also then nurtures humility in us to look at what it took to save us. That is to say, look at the cross and learn everything that Scripture says about it, most notably that Jesus went to the cross on behalf of our guilt. Therefore, the cross was necessary because of our sin. This nurtures humility. If you ever uh, get to the place where you're ho-hum about communion, you're ho-hum about sermons on the cross, you don't read anything on the cross, your heart doesn't get excited when you come to a place in Scripture that speaks about Christ on the cross, or you don't love to read the Gospels and just course through them and hear them taught to look at the life of Christ, you are going to drift into this apathy about the necessity of the cross or worse, a pride that says it, it wasn't really as necessary as God says. You're going to drift into forms of pride that are going to destroy your Christian witness. Number three was to open your heart then to the rebuke of the Spirit, the reproof and correction and training in righteousness given us by the renewal work of the Spirit of God, 2 Timothy 3.17. Then we talked about the, the way to nurture humility through confession or repentance and forgiveness of others when they sin against us. So going to God for mercy when we fail nurtures humility, not, not trying to cover it up, not trying to uh, make excuses or blame shift, but going right to God with our sin. And then to 
not only seek forgiveness for our failures, but to grant willingly, lavishly, with great compassion, forgiveness on all those who sin against us, whether they ask us or not. It's nice when they ask. It's wonderful when we can restore a relationship as they have fully acknowledged their sin. Therefore, they can become right with God. But in our heart of hearts, as we've looked at the last two times, forgiveness is a releasing of our right to judge. It nurtures humility to do so. And so here we have now this next principle in our list, and it is to pursue righteous ambition and to flee every other kind. To pursue righteous ambition and to flee every other kind. In other words, do not cultivate thoughts or motives or activities that feed personal ambition in your heart. Some preachers, Paul said, proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives. That's right. It it begins in the motives. We must test the motives when we're trying to nurture humility. We're to make it our ambition, 2 Corinthians 5.9, to please the Lord. And so we've got to look at this at the heart level. You notice in the James 3 passage, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, there it is, and it is defined for us. You can't get around it. If it's in your heart, it is already defined then as arrogance. It is already defined as pride and arrogance and coming against the truth. So I like the way James puts it because it doesn't give us any wiggle room on this issue. We we all will struggle with selfish ambition and not have righteous ambition in our hearts at times, not wanting what God wants, but wanting what we want, uh, being jealousy, jealous and envious, as we'll see in a moment in our next principle. But essentially here we begin with this one, to pursue a righteous ambition, which is to find out ways to please the Lord, to discover new ways to submit your life to Christ, to submit to His commands in a in a much more rigorous and urgent way than you had before. To ask God to open up your heart and your life and your motives to look at them so that you might make them more pleasing to Him, conform them more readily to what He says your motives ought to be. Have you ever noticed that when you're accused of something, the first thing you do just by habit because it is the flesh whether you're sophisticated at it or not, the first thing you do is you exonerate your intentions. Have you ever noticed that? Even when the activity you've just done, the action you've just done is sinful, obviously sinful. People know it's sinful. Somebody calls you out on it. What is the first thing we want to do? Well, I didn't mean to. What are we saying when we say, I didn't mean to? Or we say, that wasn't my intention. My intention wasn't to hurt you. What are we saying? I mean, to say it that quick, without an evaluation, is going to be a bit subjective, don't you think? It's going to be subjective. You haven't even looked at it. No, I I could have meant it. I mean, if I say I didn't mean to, is it really true? Have I really looked at that? What if I did mean it? What if I wanted to hurt somebody and they actually got hurt and they told me I hurt them and now I just, I don't really want them to know I meant to hurt you? Yeah, it gets difficult. 
See, this is a problem. We exonerate our intentions. You know what James does? He takes it right to the motive level. If you want to please yourself, if you have selfish ambition, it is arrogance and it is coming against the truth. Where does it begin? In the heart. If you have jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not do that because it is arrogance and lying against the truth. It is to come against the truth, but to act as though you're innocent. To push forward in selfish ambition as though you're innocent while coming against the truth. There can only be one result, James says, where those things exist. There is disorder. It's a word that means that uh, everything's going to be out of alignment. You won't align with the truth. You'll lose your focus on the truth. You'll begin to speculate about the truth. Everything will become subjective. You won't see clearly. And he says, every kind of evil is spawned out of that. Well, absolutely. If you nurture that kind of arrogance in your heart, I don't mean that you, you don't have it and at times fail in it, but if you don't battle it and you let it run rampant, this is going to be chaos in your inner life, a lack of discernment, murkiness, no understanding of or sensitivity to the clarity of truth, and out of that will then spawn every kind of conceivable deception, and it'll take you places you never thought you would go. Now, notice the fourth chapter of James, the remedy for this, and before we move to some comments about the next principle regarding jealousy, notice what is said here. In James chapter 4, he says that the Holy Spirit desires to control your life. It's interesting, the translation is a bit difficult, but he says in verse 5, do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He's made to dwell in us. Well, we have the Spirit here. We know that the Spirit dwells in us, so he's talking about the Spirit of God living within the believer and it is put in the form of an interrogative. It's a question. Do you, not, do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose when it says that the Spirit of God put within you has a jealous desire for you? So if you have jealousy in your heart, if you have desires and cravings that you want to fulfill to the point where you will sin against others to get it or sin against others to have what you want and hold on to it, you are coming against the Spirit's jealous desire to control all of you on the inside. He leaves nothing out. He wants total control of all of your desires. And so James makes it clear that we have to look at this from the standpoint of our motives, the inner life. Some, sometimes when you're wondering where you stand on an issue, just sort of separate it out. Ask yourself, what are my thoughts right now and are they thoroughly biblical? And then what, what were my desires and were they thoroughly biblical? What was I setting my affection on and was it thoroughly biblical? And, and what were my cravings and desires, my reasonings, my motives, were they thoroughly biblical? This is a way sort of to, to look at your life in a, in a much more specific and direct way as the Spirit of God is bringing conviction. When you have selfish ambition, you don't want to look closely like that. When you have a craving for greatness, 
when you toot your own horn and downplay others, you, you don't really want to look at the specifics. It's too bright a light. It exposes that you did, in fact, intend something. You did mean to do something. You can't always say, I didn't intend to do that. Well, I didn't intend to praise myself, but you did praise yourself. It's what came out of your mouth. Well, I didn't intend that. Well, how, how can you say that? Jesus said in Matthew 12, out of the mouth, what? The heart speaks. What is in there comes out eventually. We can try to mask it and have some hypocrisy. Sooner or later, every evil thing comes out of selfish ambition. So if it's in your heart to praise yourself, lift yourself up, then it's going to come out. And when it comes out, you can't then turn around and say, well, it wasn't my motive. You wouldn't, you wouldn't really know that. You're not objective. Diotrephes in 3 John 1.9 is said to have a love for preeminence. It, it is said of him that he has a love for preeminence. That's where we need to check our hearts. Do I love preeminence? Now, these principles are just going to kind of fall in line. So let's look at the next principle as it relates to this love for preeminence, this selfish ambition. To forsake unrighteous jealousy and envy. To forsake unrighteous jealousy and envy. You say, well, is there a righteous form of it? Well, indeed there is. We just saw in James 4 that the Spirit of God has a righteous jealousy to control every desire in His people's lives. But what would that look like for us? Well, a righteous envy would be when you envy someone's Christ-likeness. When you look at someone's Christ-like life and you envy, man, I want that. I want what they have. I want to emulate that, imitate that. Then you go after that with a passion. That would be a righteous envy of what someone else has that is good to have. A righteous jealousy, just to make a distinction between these two, would be when something you're called by God to protect is threatened. Like you're jealous for the protection of your marriage. You're jealous for the protection of those people God has given you a stewardship to protect. You're jealous for someone's sanctification. You're jealous for them with a godly jealousy. Like Paul said, I betrothed you to one husband and I want to see you come to completion in Christ so that you're joined to him in that way. There is a righteous jealousy that can be in the believer. But now there's also then this matter of sinful envy and jealousy. Let me just distinguish these a little bit from one another. Jealousy would be craving what others possess and resenting them for enjoying it. It would be craving what others possess and resenting them for enjoying it. That would be essentially how the word for jealousy is used in the New Testament. And then envy is, is sort of the exclamation point on jealousy. Envy is, is a desire maliciously to take from others what they possess simply because they possess it. In other words, jealousy says, I want what you have, and I resent that you get to enjoy it. Envy says, I'm going to do everything I can to take it from you. If I can't have it, you can't have it. This is jealousy and envy. It comes from selfish ambition. The two go together. To be proud, to have thoughts and motives and activities that feed your greatness instead of you disappearing in the usefulness of Christ, 
will lead to all kinds of craving what others possess and resenting them for enjoying what God gives. And then out of envy, you will try every way to downplay them and puff yourself up like the Corinthians did to one another when the gifts of the Spirit were doled out by God. They they did what those preachers did in Paul's ministry when Paul was in prison. They preached out of envy. They didn't want Paul to have an effective ministry anymore. And so after all, they said, You're in, he's in prison. God has set him aside. All this persecution is unnecessary at that level. Uh, we're, we've got a ministry approach that's much more savvy, much cooler, much more acceptable, therefore effective. We see that today. Oh, look at the size of our ministry. Oh, look at what we do over here. Look at the programs we have. Look at the multi-site campuses we have. Look at how many we do over here and how many people we have over here. And we're the fastest growing this and the largest this. I mean, I sometimes the numbers are just astounding when you look at them online. Uh, this church has 60,000 people. What are you counting everybody that drives by the church? What in the world? 60,000 people. 60 people to shepherd is plenty a responsibility before Christ. You, you want to say 60,000? These are marketing techniques that are driven by, by greed and selfish ambition and a desire to say, we're the largest, you need to come here, we have all you need, nothing else in the kingdom matters but our slice of the pie. This is sinful. Can I just say something to our congregation about that. You know, God has some wonderful, um, He has put some wonderful graces in our ministry with people and gifts and resources, and He's done some wonderful things in our church. But you know, if, if in doing those things, His kindness hasn't led us to humility and repentance, then it ought to be taken from us. Isn't that true? It ought to be removed from us. Because these are things given by God. This was John the Baptist's whole point when in John 3 he says, don't be coming after me. Go after him. I want all the disciples who followed me, and there were thousands, to come hear him preach and to hear him and to be baptized in his ministry and to follow him as his disciples, listening to everything he said, drinking in every word he gave them, and there now was Jesus, the forerunner said, go after him. Oh, look at me. Looking at me would be like being at a wedding and the best man over there saying, hey. What a great analogy. You know, our ministry here has been given some wonderful gifts by God, people with skills and talents, people with spiritual giftedness, they've nurtured people who are faithful in their life. The resources are amazing and endless. God has done that. If it serves to make us market ourselves to the rest of the world and to say of everyone else, well, everything happens here. It all happens here. It only happens here. We've missed the point. We've utterly missed the point. This 
wonderful grace of God is a kindness that should lead us to humility and, and brokenness and repentance. I love what Paul said in that text I read in 1 Thessalonians. What adequate thanks can we render, O God, for all the joy with which we have been given to rejoice over the saints in Thessalonica and the, the growth that we see in them? What possible adequate thanks could we give? For all the joy with which we rejoice. I mean, it's, it's grace upon grace. Uh, Paul's not saying, hey, if some people come in behind us and try to steal my ministry, my name, my reputation, oh no, it's on the buildings. The Apostle Paul Center. No, he didn't put his name on any of those things. It's wonderful when, when people recognize people for their contributions, but to want that, to think that's something, to live as as though you're living for monuments after yourself. This is, this is not to see the ministry rightly. People can thank people. That's appropriate. But to put your own name forward, to want your name in lights, we're, that's to miss the point. To make Grace Emanuel Bible Church some sort of icon? Like John the Baptist, our church should disappear in the shadow of Christ should disappear. That leads to this next principle then, which is related, to confess that what we have is undeserved. To confess that what we have is undeserved. So the, the principle I started with was to pursue righteous ambition rather than unrighteous ambition, to confess and forsake jealousy and envy, and now to confess that what we have is undeserved. When others admire you, and express appreciation for your giftedness and skills. Thank the Lord for the undeserved privilege to be used, let alone thanked. I was just saying that this morning, you know, just thinking as the elders were praying. If, if God saved us and then left us and said, I'll come get you when I'm ready, it would be enough. It would be mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, way too much, undeserved. Look, when all you deserve is hell and God gives you the mercy of conversion, what else would you have to have to thank Him like that? Right? And this is, of course, the great struggle in our hearts. Every achievement comes from Him and we're always entering into His labor. Notice how Paul said it to the selfish ambition of the Corinthian congregation. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Notice what he says to them. And he's, he's coming at them with correction that is at times severe because they are opinionizing and they're examining Paul's ministry in these subjective ways and they're, they're believing the lies that Guys came in behind the Apostle Paul because they flattered one another. And Paul just says, look, you're going to have to slow this process down. Stop passing quick judgments, verse 5, before the time. Wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Stop trying to get human praise. Stop trying to get human achievement accolades. Stop trying to build trophy cases Right here and now, 
Wait for the Lord to make the final assessment. Boy, that's tempering. That is so tempering to think that way. Wow. The Lord is going to reveal the motives of our hearts. Ooh. How many sermons have I preached with wrong motives? And God is going to reveal those motives. That's tempering. Now these things, verse 6, brethren, I figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Look, don't be saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and like, like he chided them for it in chapter 3. Don't say that because you're becoming arrogant on behalf of one against the other, and you're going beyond what is written. What is written? Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. That's what's written. We're nothing. Slaves of Christ, right? And what does it say in Luke 17, 10? When all is said and done, even when you've obeyed all the commandments that Jesus has given, after you've obeyed all of them, so we've got a long way to go before we reach that mark, but after you've reached that mark, if you could, this side of glory, here's what you say about yourself. Oh, God, I'm an unworthy slave who's only done what's expected of me. That's what he's saying to them. Don't go beyond what's written. Notice verse 7. For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you'd not received it? So true. Our heart goes there. These gifts are mine. These talents are mine. This job is mine. This income is mine. This savings account is mine. This career is mine. This car is mine. This hobby is mine. These looks are mine. <laughs> Terrible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, this is what we do. This is mine. And Paul says, oh, don't do that. And, and when you make plans... You want to nurture humility? James chapter 4 says, hey, make your plans, but you better lay them before the Lord. And, and instead of saying, hey, tomorrow I'm going to go to such and such city, spend a year there, engage in business, and make a profit, you should say, if the Lord wills. Why? Hey, you don't know what your life's going to be like tomorrow. Oh, how many times have we been shocked? How many bedsides have I been beside when a person was just on the, they're on the skyrocket to their highest achievements, and suddenly it's gone in an hour. And you're by their bedside, and they're saying, what happened? You don't know what your life's like tomorrow. Life's a vapor. It's here today gone. It's like the steam coming off your coffee. You see it for a split second. And so you lay your plans before the Lord. That, that humbles you. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll, we will live and do this and that. Notice what he says. If the Lord wills, we'll live. <laughs> There's something to nurture humility every day in. You know, some of us, we get up and we can't wait to try out our new skill on somebody else and apply our talents on somebody else and market our deal over here and brag about this over there and step on this person over there to get them out of the way. And we, we, we're awake all night dreaming about the nightmare of that individual who keeps taking credit from us. That has to stop, James says. You must say, if the Lord wills, I'll live. 
and then I'll be allowed to do this or that. It's the Lord that gives the power to make wealth. It's the Lord who gives you the strong back. He gives you the mind. Do you ever just in a given moment of prayer, just start thanking the Lord for the things that he has given? No, you know what we spend most of our time doing? Complaining, well, I don't have this, I don't have this, I don't look like that, and I don't have this, and Lord, I've worked hard over here, but you didn't yield as much fruit as I thought you'd yield, and that person's against me over here, and that person takes all the credit for my labor, and wah, 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 wah. I mean, we are professional complainers. Why? Because we're proud. We ought to be humbled. Give God the glory as you express gratitude to those who've been blessed by you, to those who've seen an achievement and thanked you for it, to those who have noted something about your life and has been influenced by it. Resolve to sacrifice more whenever the Lord asks and do it not expecting an ounce of anything. God owes us nothing. You realize that. He owes us nothing. And He gives so graciously. I love what Romans says in chapter 5. Hey, if He gave you His Son when you were enemies, how will He then not give you everything? He says it again in chapter 8. If God is for you, who's against you? How will He not freely give you all things? Well, I don't deserve the inheritance. I didn't deserve Christ. I didn't deserve the Lord fixing His love on me in eternity past. I don't deserve to even exist. But if the Lord wills, I'll live. And then if the Lord wills, I'll go here and do this and that. If the Lord wills, what does that mean? If it's in His purposes, if He unfolds those purposes in His providence, if He answers my prayer a certain way, that's His will He's told me what His will is for my moral life in Scripture. He's told me that I'm to obey His commands. He's told me I'm to abstain from sin and wickedness, immorality, idolatry. I'm to rid my life of those things, cleanse myself of all defilement of flesh, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Those are the things I'm to do to live a morally upright life. Those are the things I'm to do to be abiding in Christ and to have Christ be transforming me into His image. So I know what my responsibility is. Then whatever I lay before Him in prayer, whatever He chooses to do, that's His purpose for me. That's His purpose. Whatever He's given me as a talent, I'm I'm to offer it to Him every day. It isn't for my paycheck or my career or my savings account or my uh, accolades or achievements in education or whatever. Those may be great things for men to appreciate of men and women. Yes, but they are not the basis of who we are. We don't deserve any of it. To nurture humility is to recognize that, to preach that to your own heart, to refrain from boasting about anything, to refrain from it. I know that there are there are temptations that are severe and fierce. I know some of you in, in education feel that temptation to boast about your intellect. Some of you in athletics are tempted to boast about how good you are in athletics. Uh, no, that doesn't happen, does it? No, 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 no. I mean, the culture promotes this stuff. I know some of you are... Um, 
even tempted to boast about your Bible knowledge and, and how much you've taught people and how many people come to you for discipleship. And sometimes we boast about successes in life and large resources that we have. Sometimes we come in acting like, well, I have this much and I'm going to give this much and I do this. And, I, and we drop those subtle hints. And what are we doing? We're fishing for compliments and praise and nurturing pride in our hearts and minds. All that has to go. It's all got to go. If someone thanks you for influencing them or for some gift or skill or talent or sacrifice that, that has been a part of your life, you thank them and you rush your heart before the presence of God and give Him the glory for that. You say, Pastor, how do I do that? Here's the next principle. Rejoice when others are exalted. You want to nurture uh, humility and keep away from selfish ambition? Then when someone else is exalted, do not envy that. Do not try to stop them from being exalted. Rejoice when others are lifted up, used of God mightily, talented, exceptional at something better than you at something. Or when someone is exalted who is not better than you at something. Ouch. Truly thank and praise God, not later, but in the moment. If you want to get at your heart, then when they're being exalted... Go before God right then and say, Lord, pour it on. Lift them up. Let that achievement and those gifts encourage them to serve you. Encourage people around them whom they are influencing. Bless and strengthen their hand in what you have opened the door for them to do. Do it in the moment right there. That will nurture humility, especially if what they've just done and are getting credit for is something you're really good at. To praise them, that's tough. I think we talked about this when it's just interesting, comes to my mind because of baptism tonight. We, we talked about this, I think, when we did an exposition of James and Talked about the fact that when somebody's giving a testimony and you've been a big part of their life and they don't mention you. Oh. But they mention others who were who had a you know a meager influence in their life compared to the sacrifices I've made. And in your heart of hearts, you're thinking, Lord, how can that be? I mean, I spent all that time and you don't even mention me publicly? You're kidding, right? And they mentioned that person. All that person did was, you know, take him to lunch once. I spent all the time with them. I prayed with them. Who was there in their trial? I was. This is what you're doing. You're missing their whole testimony. You're missing the time of rejoicing. Why? Because you're thinking about all the things they should be saying. Why don't you just get up, come over, come up the steps, move them aside and say, let me tell the story. <laughs> let me tell how this went, brother, sister. You say, oh, I would never do that. <laughs> well, you're doing it in here. 
should you not in that moment say, Lord, thank you that you made me obscure? What's the lyric of that song we sing? Um, Lord, I, I want to serve you in secret and never be noticed. Oh, when I sing those words, it, I just shudder because I'm singing them and it feels like a rash vow because <laughs> I don't always like to serve in secret. No, in those moments, you need to say, Lord, thank you for the obscurity because that does my heart good before you. For you to use me behind the scenes and no one to ever notice. Look, there are stars in our galaxy and universe no human eye will ever see, but they have a glory all their own. Because God made them for that. You know, you have a usefulness to Christ. He may show it to people and he may make it absolutely obscure. Do you rejoice in that? Truly thank and praise God in your heart when another is elevated. It's interesting, 1 Corinthians 12 said there, says that God has composed the body just as he wills. That is amazing to me. He did not compose the body for mankind to assess it and put all the strong gifts or the showy gifts out front. That's what Corinth tried to do. That's why Paul has to write chapter 13, the rose in the middle of all the dirt and mud of that book. He's telling them about their selfish ambition and their love and sin, and out of the middle of that rises this beautiful expression of love. And he says in there, love is not arrogant, love doesn't boast and brag. You know what your problem is, Corinthians? He says that you love the showy gifts. What were they doing? Oh, well, the showy gifts have the greater influence. That's right. The showy gifts have the greater influence. I mean, you have to have preachers, and so we're going to have we're going to have the finest preachers. And you over there with the, the gifts that are meager, if not behind the scenes, they're not even needed. You're not even needed. We can handle this. We're the builders, the empire designers. We're the, we're the people that um, know how to organize and mobilize. And we're the movers and shakers. And after all, we've got the showy gifts. That guy over there speaks revelations to the, to the unbelieving Jews in the crowd because that was the purpose of that gift. And, and you don't have that gift. So you, you go over there. And Paul writes to them in chapter 12 and says, no, God has composed the body just as he wills. Why? Because here's what he wants. He wants the people with gifts that he has given that might be tempted to brag about them and would otherwise get all the accolades anyway because they're public gifts. He wants those people to love obscurity. And he wants those people to show more honor to the behind-the-scenes gifts because we need every part of the body to work in symmetry and harmony. Otherwise, it's deformed. If the people, if some people say, oh, I'm not needed because I'm not that wonderful person, then the body's deformed. If the prominent, more public giftedness in the body says, I don't need you because you don't have near the public recognition I do and for my gifts, then the body's deformed. God didn't compose the body like that. God composed the body for you to bloom where you're planted. And it nurtures humility when you rejoice in where other people are planted, growing the crop that God intends for them to grow. Everybody composed in the body just as he wills. Isn't that wonderful? Our time is gone, but I've got two more principles related to that. We will have to get to those next time. I'm going to talk about embellishing yourself 
um, from Galatians 6, and then I'm going to talk about learning to embrace obscurity. We're going to talk about how to do that next time. But here you have some key principles for nurturing humility. Confess and forsake unrighteous jealousy and envy. Pursue righteous ambition and flee every other kind. Confess that what you have is undeserved and rejoice when others are exalted. The others will be for next time. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace.